there were times when I, I didn't want to get out of bed and didn't get out of bed. I discovered alcohol and then weed and then uh, pharmaceutical drugs like amphetamines or steroid treatment, steroid drugs. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm excited today on the line we have Dale Kurd. Dale is the founder of The Men's List host of CBC's Hello Goodbye in Canada, and a psychotherapist. Dale, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Al. It's a real pleasure. It's always interesting. You know, I try to get a diverse mix of men on the show, and uh, you're not the first, but I, I uh, have not had a lot of therapists, so it's great to have a therapist who's had their own story of mental illness and some challenges that they've overcome, as well as have the professional side as well. So uh, really glad to have you on the show. Well, I think it's a real, uh, you know, it's a real opportunity, actually, um, to for, for me as a therapist to, to really you know, talk about what's, uh, what's shaped me, because I think sometimes there's a perception that therapists um, are, are without that kind of life experience um, that would have them be uh, experts or, or have expertise in a very, you know, in a very specific area. And um, in my experience, the best therapists are the ones who come out of the same um, group of people that they're trying to help. I would agree 100%. And I always try to not discount somebody who hasn't had their own personal experience, but I do strongly feel like even a therapist, if they've never had a depressive episode themselves, really probably cannot fully understand the feeling, that intense feeling of what a depression can feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. I agree, hundred percent. Because you, you, you know, it, it goes. Um, it's a deeper form of empathy when, uh, when as a therapist, I can, you know, personally relate uh, to what a client is telling me. Yeah, absolutely. So, actually, the last therapist I haven't gone to a therapist in quite some time, but once I got healthy, I found out my therapist was leaving his practice. So I did a little research and found another therapist in case I needed one and wanted to kind of share my story and have somebody at my fingertips if it was needed. And, you know, I felt like after I'd, I've had a few different therapists and had therapy for a couple of years or so, I felt like I interviewed him as much as he interviewed me, and and I really felt okay doing that. I think it's important to to make that connection and get any kind of uh, questions that I needed answered as well. In my experience, the the, the best outcomes uh, in therapy come when the, the the client or a client is fully engaged in the process. 
And by that, I mean they, even if they're not necessarily aware of what is going on for them, but they're fully committed and they're fully engaged and they come with a lot of questions. And certainly somebody who has had experience with therapy, has undergone therapy before, different types of therapy, there's a, a different type of question or a series of questions that they ask when they first sit down. And all of that goes into informing the type of process and the type of work that can happen between a therapist and, um, and a patient or a client. Um, so even if they're not necessarily informed about their process, but they come with active engagement, the outcomes in my experience are far better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I went as far as asking him and I said, you know, I'm going to ask you a personal question if that's okay. And if you don't want to answer, I'm totally fine with that. And I asked him if he had ever experienced depression himself. And he was very honest and he said he had. And I had already shared my story and he just said, you know, it wasn't as deep as you were in as dark a place. And he shared with me essentially more details than I even really wanted or needed but it was very it was he was open about it and that meant a lot to me and you mentioned in the beginning how when you've had your own experience and it helped kind of develop you as a therapist and some people believe therapists haven't had that type of experience I'm wondering if I get the sense and I could be way off base here that many therapists have their own story and are not comfortable or maybe not able in their profession, if they're with a clinic or something, to be able to share with anybody even the fact that they've had their own bout of depression, say? You know, I think that uh, is true in many cases. Certainly there is a code of conduct that therapists and um, uh, those that are engaged in in one-on-one work with patients or clients there's a, a jurisprudence, there's a code of conduct, and, uh, you know, it's quite stringent depending on where you live and where you operate your practice from. Uh, and as you mentioned in your, in your question, whether you're part of a group practice or a clinical practice, it's quite stringent on what you're allowed to share or what you can share about your own personal life. And in some modalities of therapy, it's really frowned upon to to share personally, um, because the the mode of the, the the goal of the therapist is to is to really be that blank slate that the patient or the client can project their journey onto uh, and work through that rather rather than have um, information from the therapist or the practitioner that could cloud or or sway that. And in other modalities, it's really important that there be this really strong. Uh, like likeness, um, I'll call it, um, and which is a similarity of experience or a similarity of journey um, that a, a client can identify um, with, knowing that the the practitioner has perhaps been in similar places in their own life and they come from that type of um, that depth of experience. You see a lot of that, for instance, in addiction counseling. <clears throat> some of the best addiction counselors, some of the some of the um, the more successful programs will have will be staffed or certainly undertaken by uh, former addicts or clean clean addicts and uh, recovering addicts. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I, therapy is a 
uh, is like a fingerprint. It's it. There really is no catch-all or one way that works for everyone. And the best approach I have found and that I recommend to clients is that they find an approach that really does work for them. And and work is the key word here because it shouldn't just be comfortable. I shouldn't be seeking comfort. I should be seeking uh, growth. I should be seeking healing. And all growth and all healing comes with moments that are very uncomfortable and very painful and very dark, as well as moments that are uh, enlightening or evocative. Um, it comes with the full range. There are successes and there are times when it feels like nothing is going well and that I, that, and that I feel stuck in the process. And all of that is, is a big part of therapy. But finding the right practitioner is about finding the one where, where I feel I can be most myself. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to become somebody else. I don't have to caretake the therapist or the practitioner that I can just walk in. I can pop myself down on whether it's a chair or a couch or a floor, and I can just be myself because that's when the work really begins. Absolutely. So what type of advice would you give somebody who's looking for a therapist and maybe has never had therapy? Well, if they've never had therapy before, you know, my goal would be to would be to meet that person where they're at. And a lot of the times that's in the realm of um, they have questions. They want to know. They want to understand a process. They want to understand what the work will be like. They want to know what to expect. Their mind, when they first step in, is a big question mark, and they may have uh, expectations of what would happen or could happen. And I think the job of the therapist, my job certainly in a first session, is to help set the tone, but also to lay out expectations. Because this person has to be able to decide for themselves whether they want to whether they want to continue and, and engage, you know, in a process. So I would certainly say to somebody new, just starting out, ask lots of questions, you know, ask lots of questions of your therapist. Uh, how, you know, what is their range of experience? What kinds of expertise, sorry, what kind of expertise do they have in, uh, in what areas? Is it something that you think would be a fit for you? Um, do you feel like, you know, do you feel like you could be yourself? And then there are maybe even slightly more challenging questions like, um, how are you going to, what are you going to do if I want to stop coming? If I find this too difficult, how are you going to support me through that? Or will you support me through that? Or what if, what if I decide that uh, I've gotten everything I need, but you, you feel as the therapist that I'm not done or I'm, I'm incomplete. How do we handle that? I think as, as the client or the patient, you, you have to ask all the questions about process that you can possibly think of. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And I would imagine if a therapist ever said anything to the effect of, hey, I'm the therapist here, I'll ask the questions, you probably know it might not be a good fit. <clears throat> well, you know, it's funny you say that. And <laughs> I've heard that. I've certainly heard that. And I would go so far as to say in the early part of my practice, I probably said that. Okay. And, and what I, you know, sometimes, you know, a colleague of mine, a former colleague of mine put it really, really well, and, and it really rang true for me. You know, our job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Oh, right. I like um, that. And, uh, when in the, in the moment I wasn't completely sure what he meant because I thought our, my job as a therapist 
was to heal and healing and comfort um, a lot of times uh, go hand in hand. And I get now what he meant, and, and that is that we need to, you know, meet each client or each patient where they're at. And those that are truly afflicted, um, we need to provide them with comfort and hope. And those that are comfortable, meaning they're well entrenched in their coping uh, behaviors or their um, uh, or a personality or an identity that's keeping them essentially locked in a way of um, a stuck way of being, our job is to is to essentially create some disturbance or to create some disruption so that they get a, they have an opportunity to get a, a, a peek behind that, that the strength of that ego or those coping uh, behaviors so they can see what's underneath and what's really driving it. Sometimes you have to say to someone, um, hey, wait a second, I'm, I'm, I'm the one asking the questions here. And only because maybe that's the moment where you need to reveal to them that you're going to take care of them that you're going to be the one as the therapist that's going to hold the line of, of trust and that they can actually relax or surrender uh, to a certain extent to you and to the process because you have got them. So it really is situational. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know for me, I, well, I was in a pretty deep, dark place the first time I went to a therapist ever. And I was at a place where just like socializing, I could no longer do. I couldn't have interactions with people. So no matter what therapist I walked into, it wasn't going to be a really relational piece right off the bat. And for me, that was challenging. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't judging people based on the place I was at as far as my depression was. And one piece of advice I give, and I'm curious what your take is on this, I usually say when you meet a therapist, at least give them a shot for two or three sessions. And if you just aren't clicking after that, then it might be worth looking into somebody else because you need to find somebody that you do click with, that you do trust, but you also have to give them that opportunity. I absolutely agree with that. I, I think the, you know, we have a system here in Canada that uh, where, where a lot of insurance companies um, are, you know, are um, are paying for people's uh, therapy that, you know, people are making claims and getting support from their insurance companies for their therapy. But the insurance company will set a limit on the number of sessions that a person can have, typically six and typically six sessions. And you can, depending on what a person comes in through the door with, you can make some headway uh, in six sessions, you know, six hours, let's say, or, um, and in some, but in most cases, you really can't. You really can't get at any work or any real unpacking, even in six sessions. But what you can get, certainly by three sessions or by six sessions is that you can get a sense whether you and this therapist are aligned. And this is really the key, right? The, the difference between in the therapeutic journey, the, the difference between agreement and alignment. In, in therapy, I want to uh, work with someone who is aligned with um, my outcomes as the patient or as the client. And so that I know that I might not always agree with uh, tactic and I can speak up about that or I may not agree with a line of inquiry or I may not agree with something that was said 
I can always challenge that because I know there's a safety in knowing that myself and the therapist, that we are aligned in what my objectives are for coming to therapy. Right. And, and that, that's what it has to be. It has to be an alignment between, between the professional therapist and the client or patient. Yep, absolutely. So I will give you this example that I had of one of my therapists, the first one I ever went to. And again, I did go three times, but this, the second time was probably, I felt like it was like 10 minutes of him reading his computer notes about me from the last session and reading them aloud. And in my head, I was like, okay, there's 10 minutes of my 30 minute session or whatever it was. And then, Mm -hmm. and he did that each time. And in addition to that, I just did not feel that we were aligned. I think that's a great term. I didn't feel aligned. I didn't feel on the same page with him. And again, I was in a pretty deep, dark place, so it was tough for me to really know. So that was my first experience, and I did leave him after three sessions. I found another therapist through a referral, and this is why I like to give somebody a shot for two or three times. His My first appointment with him, again, I was in a very deep, dark place, and I was turned off a little bit because he started asking me some very personal questions, and I was still in the midst of a ton of shame, right? Like where I Mm -hmm. worked specifically, and part of me, like I felt like I couldn't even stand up to myself, like this is the therapist, I need, I better answer, right? I Mm -hmm. couldn't even say, you know what, I'm a little uncomfortable telling you exactly where I work right now. It was like two blocks from the clinic um, from where he practiced. So I did share that, and then I left just thinking like, wow, he's asking me all these personal questions. But I went back a second time, a third time, and and he was fantastic. And Mm -hmm. again, I think part of it was just my uneasiness and awkwardness of being in this deep, dark place where I couldn't even really communicate very well myself. Well, you know, I I, want to, you know, say that your perseverance to stick with it was 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 really awesome. Amazing, Uh, because I think a lot of uh, individuals would have uh, would have bailed after the first session. And and many have uh, certainly in 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 every therapist's client history, there will be people that came once and, and never came back. And and let me tell you, as a therapist, those those individuals tend to, and interactions tend to haunt us more than anything else because we know that that was a missed opportunity. It stays with us, you know, it certainly stays with me that it was a missed opportunity. And, and if the client was really ready to come through the door, like think about all of the obstacles that that individual um, had to come through in order to get into my office, that if they, they decided at the end of that that they were never coming back, then to a large extent, that might be on me as the therapist. And it's something for me, it's an opportunity for me to look about uh, and see how I can grow. Um, uh, Did I miss something? Did I miss some obvious cues? Where was I in the session? Was I completely present in the session? Um, Or was I following a process? Um, You know, those are the kinds of things, uh, certainly in my conversations with other therapists, those are the kinds of things that tend to stay with us and haunt us for a bit. Well, it's great that you reflect so much on that and try to grow from it as well. And I would imagine there also has to be this kind of thick skin and, and understanding that, hey, I'm, you're not going to be the right fit for everybody. Yeah, you know, there's a you you say thick skin. And, and I think what we what we uh, and through various 
aspects of, of um, certainly any kind of one-on-one work, um, there comes, um, uh, I, it's almost a type of de- surrender or even, um, I would say, a, an empathetic detachment um, that we have to develop. Uh, and I say empathetic detachment because you can still, I can still feel and relate and can, and want to connect and see myself in the in the client's issues but i have to i have to detach to say uh, that i i can't insert myself in this client's process or in this client's uh life more than they are willing to step in themselves and and i can't be more earnest in the ther- therapeutic process than they are and that takes that takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of boundary work that um, uh, that therapists go through on top of our training. You know, our training is great and I think sets us up, to, you know, depending on the modality, sets us up for great clinical work. But the real development of the therapist comes in the countless hours of actual of actually doing the work, um, the rolling up the sleeves and, and getting into the work uh, with the patients or clients. That's where we really learn about ourselves. Yeah, I could see that a lot. And I'm wondering, do you have any types of professional groups where you intentionally uh, meet other therapists in a small group setting? Like, I'm in education, and in the education world, we call it professional learning communities. You get together Mm -hmm. with your team, you talk about kids and data and where a kid's at and how we're going to move them forward. And I've always thought it would be, and I'm sure there are some in the medical field, for example, you know, if you have a surgery, it's gone wrong, you all get together. I know they have certain processes. I'm wondering, as therapists, do you have any kind of groups like that? Absolutely. There's a lot, there's a um, a fairly robust uh, peer support community for a lot of different modalities of work. Uh, You know, I know, for instance, uh, as an example, the Gestalt community as a modality of therapy have a very strong uh, peer support network. Um, You know, I ran uh, men's groups for 12 years, and um, a big part of that process was. Uh, briefing and debriefing um, before and after every evening um, in a in a you know peer support facilitator to facilitator um, process so that we could um, best serve the men that were sitting in that circle. As it stands today, I'm in the process of actually looking at. Uh, going back to school to do another, uh, essentially to, to, to go into grief counseling. Um, I, so at this point in my career, I'm looking at coming out of psychotherapy or adding on to psychotherapy and going into grief counseling. And I think once I achieve that, you can bet that I'll be wanting to connect with other grief counselors to better understand uh, the process and and to really understand the nuances of supporting somebody through grief and what that journey looks like to support myself because obviously this will be a whole other level of work or a a new you know sort of self mining that I'm going to have to go through so I'm for sure going to need some support not only from a peer-based group but also from my own therapist um, uh, from my own professional that I can go to and and really just be a guy showing up and wanting to do his work. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. That will, I can only imagine that that is very inspiring to be able to try to move into a different realm of therapy for you. 
Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. It, it, for me, it's more of a stage of life thing. So I'm 56, and um, I have certainly experienced loss uh, in more so in the last 10, 15 years of my life than than the prior, let's say, prior decades. And I can see on the horizon um, that I'm probably going to experience more loss personally as my as I age and my generation ages, and then the generations that are just ahead of me, the men who, men and women who are 10, 15, 20, 25 years ahead of me are experiencing tremendous amounts of loss. And I think what, what was there for me was that how, really how ill-equipped we are to process uh, loss and to grieve, uh, because it's, it's, it's been a thing that we, we haven't, um, that most of us haven't experienced in our, uh, say, in our um, in our life, and we don't necessarily have a close relationship to grief um, because we haven't experienced that much of it. So it's something for me that I think is it could be you know really important as another chapter or perhaps even the last chapter of my life's work. Yeah, that's exciting! Exciting to be jumping into that. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I, I wanted to come back, uh, for a minute to the men's group and you mentioned kind of, uh, debriefing and learning and reflecting after a men's group. So was that with like a co-facilitator that you were referencing? Absolutely. So we ran, um, uh, well, you know, this, this sort of speaks to my own journey. I, I started as a, uh, as a client in a men's group back in, um, 2000, 2001, and by 2004, um, I had become a, um, you know, trained and gone to school and had become a facilitator. And then in 2006, started running the program. And that program w- entailed, you know, three groups a week, sometimes four groups a week, um, up to, you know, 12, uh, 14 men in each group. And so it would be my, in, in minimally, there would be myself and one other uh, facilitator, but most times there would be myself and two other facilitators. And, um, and because there were just so many men in the room, um, you know, so there, we needed to make sure that the ratio of, of men in the room to, to facilitation um, was such that we could uh, engage in the processes that were necessary because this was emotionally focused therapy. This is uh, emotional processing work, uh, this particular men's group. So we were dealing with um, and working with men who, who presented with a variety of different uh, conditions or concerns, everything from separation and divorce to addiction to anger issues to suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety. Um, there really was just an abundance, if you will, of um, symptomology and, and um, conditions that men were walking in with. And everybody was in the same circle or circles. So it was really important for us to brief beforehand and check in with, with, with ourselves as facilitators. You know, had we heard from individual men during the, the course of the week and uh, update everybody on where certain men were at, uh, work, for our, work through our own stuff, what, what had we experienced that week that might, we might inadvertently or unconsciously bring into the room and into the circle. And then certainly afterwards, making sure that we kept everybody abreast of uh, what we saw in the room and, and where we thought um, 
uh, certain processes for a man might be going, but also to make sure that we weren't walking home or going home to our families or our relationships um, wearing anything from from the evening. Right. That's incredible. So 12 years, you said, running those groups, huh? 12 years, yeah. 12 years. To, um, I ended, I did my last group uh, in uh, the summer of 20, 2015. And, um, it, uh, uh, it was quite an experience. It sort of set me up for this next chapter, which really has been when I kept, when I stepped out of, of facilitating, um, you know, and we were very fortunate. I have to say we were very fortunate that we, we, um, got to work with as many men as we did. And I think we made a, a tremendous amount of impact, um, on the men that we were fortunate enough to work with. And yet I came out of the experience thinking to myself, for every man that we help, there's probably, there has to be a hundred thousand that we haven't touched in, yeah. in some way who, who, who need the help. And I just had, couldn't figure out how to, how to help more men. It just didn't, wasn't obvious to me until, uh, earlier this year, um, so here we are uh, now, 2019. So that's uh, four years later. That it, I thought to myself, well, what if I, what if I created a site uh, that essentially became a bridge for men that are looking for help, men that need help, that they want to take that first step, and professionals who have expertise have the interest um, and, uh, and, the, and the guidance to work with men and, and to be able to um, support men in the ways that they, they are best supported. Um, so that really was the, the beginning and the, and the, the initial um, thought behind setting up the men's list. So we are a, a directory um, that's our, our basic structure. But we're a directory that combines a real content-rich focus. We want to present um, uh, content uh, on issues and on concerns. We want to make sure that that's really rich, almost like a, a magazine about mental health. We want to really dive into that and how men are impacted by these issues or um, what, what's the relationship between men and their mental health. We want to explore that. Um, so we lots of content. We have content coming from our um, our professional members who are all constantly writing themselves and um, doing interviews. So we we post that content. Um, so we paired we paired this idea of a magazine with a professional directory, and that directory serves the U.S., uh, the U.K., Canada, uh, and other countries um, in Europe and um, in the Middle East. So. Uh, that's our goal. We started in July of this year, and um, our traffic has been really fantastic. It's been um, uh, growing uh, exponentially. I think we're early days still, but we're you know we're averaging about four or five hundred uh, visitors a week, just men looking for help. And so our goal now is to try to get the word out to as many therapists and psychologists and coaches and. NLP practitioners, anybody who's got that expertise to try to get them onto the list because we know that men are coming and they're looking. That's fantastic. How many uh, therapists or providers would you say are on the site now? Well, right now we're at a we're at a, a, a sort of an early phase. We've only got about I think we only have fifteen to be honest with you, but we've only uh, we've made sure that those fifteen do online work. So there's quite a bit of online work um, being offered, and we're anxious again to to get more therapists in. We know we know they're out there. We know that there are a lot of people 
professionals who work with men who have that expertise. Uh, it's just a matter of getting the word out there. Again, I think it's it's still very early, but I'm really encouraged by uh, the presence that we have on our social media platforms like uh, Twitter uh, and um, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn, where we're really diving into those communities and and you know collaborating with people, um, trying to get the word out and trying to r- really uh, attract professionals into serving the men who are coming and looking for help. Yeah, that's awesome. And like you said, it's way in its infancy still of Mm -hmm. three or four months or so, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you've probably been down this road with the podcast. You know, you you have this awesome idea, this incredible idea. You have all of the the heart to put it together. And then, uh, you know, it's about, well, where are the ears and where are the eyes? And, you know, you you realize that that's a huge part of it. And and, um, so that, you know, we're in that phase right now. You and I could be talking a year from now, and I think we'll be having a very different conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to take you back a bit because you alluded to the fact that you started as a patient within the men's group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and were you, had you already gone through your training to become a psychotherapist or was that before you went into psychotherapy? Well, that was definitely before. I had been to a couple of therapists before, and um, but uh, really didn't stick with it. I was um, definitely classic, classic uh, guy in in sort of knocking on the door, going through, doing the one session, uh, and then not coming back. And I just wasn't ready, to be honest with you. And I was looking for quick, sort of a quick uh, symptom fix, or or um, something to to alleviate the pain right away. Um, and it wasn't until I got into the men's group in early 2000, late 2000, early 2001, that I um, really understood what it was going to take to peel back uh, the layers of, of um, mental work, certainly that I had to do and the emotional work. You know, I was in a, uh, a really dark place in, in uh, 2000. It was at the, uh, the end of my second marriage. And um, I looked at myself in the mirror and I went, wow, okay, this is never what I thought would happen. You know, one time I can understand, maybe I can mark that down to we both weren't ready. But twice, I'm kind of the common denominator here. Maybe I should maybe I should really start to look at myself. But I didn't know where to look. And at the same time that I was going through a divorce, I got uh, fired from a job. And I think my identity was so tied to uh, being relevant and being valued uh, for the work that I did that when I uh, got fired, it really, I think the combination of of, um, the marriage collapsing and losing the job uh, and then going subsequently going into debt because I was thinking to myself, you know, I was trying to be optimistic I think to myself, well, this is this won't last for long, and I'll I'll get another job and and all of that, but not recognizing that I was in no no emotional or mental state to actually even begin to work again, and then combined with all of that, I had at the time uh, a three year a three year old son, and uh, was full of shame and and doubt about oh here I am I'm I'm his father but 
wow, I'm, I'm struggling to provide a roof over his head. I'm struggling to feed him. I'm struggling to do so much. You know, there was at my, at my lowest point, Al, I was taking seven $20 bills and putting them into a, into an envelope representing each day. And that's what I had to spend $20. And if I had anything left over at the end of that $20 of, of a given day, well, then that was a great day, and I, I put it into the next day. But let me tell you, many times uh, I, I, my pockets were empty at the end of the day, um, and I was so full of shame and uh, self-judgment about being at this, being at that time in my, well, I would have been 30, 36, 37 years of age, and being at, and, and experiencing this, that I was in a that I went into definitely into a depressive episode um, that lasted several months, and there were times when I, you know, I didn't want to get out of bed and didn't get out of bed. Quite frankly, just didn't get out of bed. What were some of the other symptoms you were dealing with? Uh, intense anger and rage, um, self judgment. Um, I couldn't, uh, you know, I used to be a, a person in my early work career that could manage multiple, uh, levels of stress. Um, I was in a very high, uh, stressful, uh, job. And when I was, uh, when I was going through depression, it, it was, you know, just to, just to string together two or three activities was, was, was too much. If I'd gotten, if I got a phone call while I was on my way to do something, uh, as simple as, um, you know, make a breakfast, that would be enough to like, I, that would just set me off. I was like, that was just too much for me. I was, I isolated from my friendships. Um, I didn't want anybody to, to see me. I didn't want anybody to interact with me because I thought to myself, I have, I have my child every other week. And so for 14 days out of a month, I have to be on. And then every other day outside of that, I can, I can literally retreat to uh, the darkness of my own mind. And ruminate, I would imagine. Um, you know, ruminate is such an interesting word. I'm a bit of a word nerd and a word geek. You know, ruminate comes from the same Latin word as ruminant, which is what cows and um, you know, uh, which was what cows do, right? They have four stomachs. They literally chew something over and over and over and over again. And I think in in the deepest part of my darkness, that's where I was. I was in some kind of stair, uh, downward spiral staircase uh, that just kept going and going and going and going and, and with the same uh, carousel of thoughts. Right. You were not at the time a professional therapist? Correct. Okay. Yeah. What type yeah. of work were you doing at the time? Well, um, I had come out of um, 15, 10, 15 years of um, um, the entertainment business. So I worked at a record company for uh, for a number of years as a, a head of publicity and then national publicity and then, uh, and then went into what they called special marketing, which was essentially TV marketing and uh, compilations. So... Um, essentially trying to make the record company uh, even more money through repurposing um, what they would call catalog. And then I came out of that and I ran a graphic design company thinking that that would be a great move because I could put all my effort into growing this graphic design business. And that's when I got fired. The, guy, the uh, gentleman that hired me uh, 
after two years, you know, took me out for lunch and, and said, well, this experiment has failed and um, uh, you don't have to go back to the office. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it was shocking. It was shocking at the time. And, you know, karma is this is this sweet poetic force because um, several years later, that same individual uh, walked into a men's group that I was facilitating and sat down and, and said, I need help. And uh, I was very thankful that I was in a place to be grateful for his presence and not carrying any, any lingering uh, energy about, um, about losing the job. Because frankly, you know, I, I reflected back and losing the job set me into the, the spiral and the spiral set me to therapy. Uh, you know, I can't say that I would have ever made it there had I not had that um, co- uh, that convergence of events in my life. Right, right. So you joined a men's group. How did you find out about the men's group, and did you utilize any other structures of support at the time to get through your depression? Well, I so I found out about the men's group through uh, um, a former work colleague. A guy reached out to me because uh, he hadn't heard from me in a while. And he uh, sent me a note, a text, and said, listen, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. Um, but I would, I would really appreciate if you would call me um, because I'm worried about you. And this was a guy that um, I didn't necessarily know very well personally, but that I had a lot of respect for. And I respected him for, for how he showed up as a, as a man. Um, and I knew him to be, uh, you know, ha- to have a lot of integrity. And so I called him back. I don't know what made me call him back, to be honest, other than then I felt like if he was going to reach out to me, then then there was a thought that maybe I owed him at least a call back and with no expectation of what would come out of the call. And he invited me. He just said, I'm really glad to hear from you. I'm going to my men's group tonight, uh, at which I had no idea that he went to. He said, I'm going to my men's group tonight, and I think it's a really awesome experience. It saved my life. Um, would you be my guest? No, no, um, no obligation. If you don't like it, you can leave within the first couple of minutes. Just, I just would love you to be my guest, and I'll come and pick you up. Wow, cool. I know. I know. Well, it changed my life. It changed my life. And so I accepted his invitation, and I got to this group, and I sat down, and I'll tell you, Al, for the first uh, it was a three-hour group. For the first hour, I think I uh, I looked around and I mu- I must have had uh, a tsunami of judgments about every other man in that room, uh, and then a tsunami of self-judgment in the second hour, and and by the third hour, um, after seeing men move, you know, move intense amounts of feeling, whether it be sadness or fear uh, or anger. I think I was, uh, I, to be honest with you, I was, I was intimidated um, by the level of of uh, work that was being done in the group and the and the facilitation. I'd just never seen facilitation like this before. Like the insights the facilitators um, were helping these men discover uh, about what was going on was, to me, was just mind blowing. So I came out of that going, well, I don't know if I'll go back, but I, certainly it's gotten my attention. It's it's. It's evoked something very strong in me. It's provoked some very strong thinking. And I walked home thinking, you know, this is interesting. Uh, I walked home 
And for the first time, that was the first time in months that I didn't, like I didn't have the darkness. I was so preoccupied, so preoccupied with thinking about the group that I wasn't in the darkness. Oh, that's awesome. And I thought, I know, I know. And so I thought to myself, well, that has to be something, right? There has to be some value in that as an experience. And so I went back and I went back and back and back. And I spent my first, uh, they were the time, I think they were 22 or 20, 22, 24 week sessions, three hours a week. And I went back for one whole session and at the near the end of the first session, there was a young man in the in the group, 17 years old, and uh, and he kind of looked at me and he just said, "Why, you know?" Because I hadn't really been participating up to that point; I'd just been watching, and I think that was part of the the place that I was in. Like I just wasn't ready to unpack who I was yet, you know. And the facilitators were giving me the space just to watch, you know, take a seat, be in the room, but just to watch. And this young man who, you know, who was uh, uh, in the group turned to me and he said, "Um, I don't know why the fuck you're here. (laughs) Like, what, what are you doing here? He said, you know, I want to know who you are and I want to get to know you. And I think I can help you. And I certainly think you can help me, but you have to show up. Like, you have to show up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite quite shocking. Uh, I was quite shocked. And I backpedaled verbally a bit and, you know, said I'm not comfortable. And I, I, I was sweating, sweating on my brow and sweating underneath my arms. And I'm thinking, I got to get the hell out of this room. Like, the jig is up. Like, uh, I, you know. <laughs> I, I can't I can't sustain just watching anymore and I'm not sure I, I'm ready to participate. And so the group closed that night and this young guy walked up to me and he and he said, Listen, I just want you to know that I care about you and uh I want to help you and I really want your help. And that's what this group is really about. Wow, cool. I know. And so I kept going. That's really cool. And, you know, I think it goes to the saying that I really believe in, too. Like, you really get out of it what you put in. And you Mm -hmm. talked earlier about the hard work of therapy, even, right? And same with a support group. It's not all all easy work. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It isn't. And and I think we're not... um, uh, We're not... we, We don't have a great relationship, I think, Al, with pain. And I'm not saying that we need to be masochistic in our pain. Certainly, there, there, there are there are strong enough masochistic tendencies. I think unconsciously in in, in many men that they they that they suffer through pain unnecessarily. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this idea that pain can be a teacher, and that in therapy there are moments when there are teachable moments in therapy, self-teaching moments, and and sometimes those come with pain, and we need the pain because the pain wakes us up. You know, I, I, I say that because I had an experience in in one of my groups where I had done I'd done quite a bit of uh, uh, rage uh, release work, and and what I was unpacking was 
I grew up in a violent house. Uh, my dad was physically and um, emotionally and mentally abusive to myself and uh, and my mother. And I was sexually abused by other men who I was seeking as you know mentors or um, uh, pseudo fathers in in my life when my dad uh, finally left uh, the family. So I was unpacking all of that. So I had a lot of rage, tremendous amount of rage. And during one of these rage releases, um, I had scraped my knees and my feet and my elbows and my hands on the carpet, essentially just just rug burns, but pretty like open rug uh, rug burns. And when I got home after the session, I, uh, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about them. I, I think I, my relationship to pain and self-harm was such that unless it reached really, unless it reached a certain threshold, I really didn't take notice or I would hurt myself and would put myself in dangerous physical situations so that I could actually feel the pain because then I was actually feeling something. And so this night I get home after group and I step into the shower and the water hits these rug burns all over my knees and my uh, ankles and my feet and my hands and my elbows, the back of my neck. And my body is alive, like, like I've got electricity running through it. There's just so much pain coming through uh, at, the, op- at the, the open sores and the water. And all I could do was to break down and sob. And the only words that, like, I wasn't thinking anything, but the words that came to me were, stop hurting me. Just stop hurting me. And I got in that moment that I was talking to others who had hurt me, but most importantly, I was talking to myself. Say more about that. Well, that that I was living ways, I was behaving in ways that were harmful to me. They were painful to me. But I was, I had numbed out the pain. I had pushed my threshold on the pain. I dulled the pain so that I didn't notice it anymore. You know, alcohol is great for that. You know, weed is great for that. Distraction is great for that. Busyness at work is great for that. Pornography is awesome for that. Anything that takes me away from being in the emotional or mental pain that I just don't want to sit in. I don't want to address it. And you get so many, you know, I had so many of those behaviors going at one point that it was just about keeping those going. It wasn't really about addressing what was driving them or what was motivating them. But standing in the shower... Having my having the water, the hot water hit all of these open sores and the, you know, the metaphors are just too rich there. All of these open sores on my body, I couldn't deny it anymore. Like it was all I could think about was how much pain I was actually in. And then and then it just occurred to me, like, I like I don't want to be in this pain anymore. I, I don't want to feel this pain anymore. I need to make a choice here about about this. I need to make a choice for myself because I just don't want to feel this level of pain anymore. Wow. So, you know, I feel like uh, the your upbringing 
sounds like it was really rough at times yeah and definitely I, and i had no idea i mean in my mind i was thinking typical upbringing typical story second divorce uh threw you into a depression first deal with mental illness but were you dealing with mental illness all through growing up in such a home environment i think so and i just didn't know that like mm -hmm. i think so you know, just to put it in perspective, I, uh, you know, I was a classic uh, acting out um, child when it came to school. I just didn't want to be there. I didn't want to do anything. Um, I never felt seen or heard. And the kinds of treatment that I would get at school really just, you know, really would just reinforce what I was hearing at home. Um, or what I was receiving at home. So for me, it was just a place, uh, certainly elementary school and, and um, uh, a chunk of high school was really about reinforcing the shame that I already felt. And by the time I hit, you know, high school, wow, I discovered, you know, I discovered um, alcohol and uh, went headlong into that. And that what, what an awesome trip that was, it seemed. And then, you know, uh, then weed and then, uh, pharmaceutical drugs. And, and I was a big fan at the time of go faster drugs. So I loved anything like amphetamines or steroid treatment, steroid drugs or anything, anything that made me go faster, um, was, was what I was looking for. Um, and you know, at the time I didn't think that I was suffering with anything mental because to be honest with you, the guys that I hung out with we were all doing the same things. And it's only now in hindsight, when I look at our histories, like, you know, I have a, I have a really good friend, uh, whose, you know, f f father left at a uh, really early age, really tore up the family. Dad never saw him again. Uh, I have another friend whose mother died in a car accident when he was six father marries again, that marriage breaks up when he's uh, 12, 13. You know, it's this, these were the guys that I hung out with. And we used to joke about what happened in our lives, rather than, uh, and we would joke and we would cope. That's what we would do. We would joke and we would cope. And, and we would cope with all of the dysfunctional things um, uh, that we saw other people doing. You know, do you think you were ever addicted? I definitely was addicted to amphetamines. I can tell you that uh, it got really um, it got really bad, I'd say, for for about a year. And it was at the point I was never a big guy. You know, I think at that time I was probably 130 pounds wet, um, you know, at five, eight, five, nine. So I was quite, quite lean, if you will. And I lost a bunch of weight because of all the amphetamines that I was taking, and um, and then and I noticed it, and 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 it was kind of like uh, I need to, I need to figure out how to do. I need to get off of these things. Uh, I need to figure out a way to do this. And it it probably took another year for me to to kind of come off them. Do you think your parents ever knew about the, the addictions or the ways you were coping? They knew about some of the behavior because by that point I'd been, you know, I'd had a couple of um, interactions with uh, with police by that point for crazy, you know, just doing s stupid things like theft and 
and fighting and, you know, public uh, or disorderly conduct and public. So they knew about that stuff. They, but I think what they saw was just a, you know, was, was, a, was me having lost my way. N- not that I was actually trying to deal with something or with a series of things, quite frankly. Right. But you made it through high school. I made it through high school. I took a couple of years off after high school. I didn't finish high school. We have a joke here in my family uh, that my kids have gone further in school than I have because, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I was one credit short of high school. I just walked out and I went, screw it. I'm not, I'm not interested. So I worked for a couple of years and then I went to university. I went back to university, much the same way that I got into therapy. I had a friend intervene with me. I'll, I'll rem- and I keep I say I say this to him every time I see him because he lives in England. Uh, every time I see him, I say, Rob, you know, you saved my life um, in more ways than you can imagine. Because he sat me down in in his mom's car. It was pouring rain, and um, he said, "What are you doing with your life? Like, what is going on with you?" And you know, I said, "What do you mean? You know, I'm 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 just hanging out, job to job. What's the big deal?" He go, and he was the first person in my life, and again, a peer, but he was the first person in my life, kind of a, a goodwill hunting moment where he could look at me and said, you're better than this. Like, you're smarter than this, and you're better than this, and you have more to offer, and I will help you go back to school. You have to do the hard work. Like, you've got to get the applications, and you've got to get the funding. He said, but I will write the letters that have to be there. I will go to the interviews with you. I will help you in the admissions process. I will help you, but you got to want to go. He said, and if you don't, if you don't do this, he said, I'm not so sure I can support what you're doing anymore. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. You definitely bumped into uh, some really, really caring friends who have looked out for you. I have. And some critical, critical points. Critical points in my life. I'm very, very grateful um, for the presence and the courage that these people have shown me. Uh, Definitely, like forever grateful. So tell us now how you got into the world of hosting a TV show in 2015, which was right around the end of your stint leading the men's groups. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that is an interesting story. So one of my best friends, a guy that I grew up with, um, he uh, ended up going to film school and um, came out of film school and, and um, you know, 10, 15 years later found himself, uh, you know, uh, shooting commercials and doing that kind of work. And um, he and I were sitting in a, uh, in a coffee shop in Toronto one day and we were sitting at this big community table inside this coffee shop. And, um, as we were having our conversation, sort of just catching up, I became aware of all the people around us who were having all of these very, very personal conversations in a public place. And I turned to him and I said, you know, that's really interesting. Like how we can tell strangers very personal things or how we can have very personal conversations in very public places. And we talked about the idea and thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to get a park bench or set up a park bench and just invite people to 
have a conversation with us and let's not be attached uh, uh, to where that conversation actually goes, but let's just be willing to hold space for somebody to share what's really top of mind for them. And that concept turned into a show called Life Story Project, which was on the Oprah Winfrey Network um, in 2013. And CBC, who is our national broadcaster, saw that show and had had the rights to this uh, Dutch show called Hello, Goodbye. They had the rights for Canada, but they couldn't find a host. And as I've heard the story, they saw Life Story Project, the Oprah show, and said, well, we should get that guy to, to host the show. And so they contacted my friend, who by this point had gone from a, being a director to owning a production company. And they said, can you get this guy for us? And they, he said, well, I think so, because he's my best friend. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he'd be willing to try it. So I auditioned in 2014. And uh, was fortunate enough to get the uh, the the, uh, the gig to host the show, and we started shooting in in uh, the summer of 2015, and we shot 2015, uh, 2016, and 2017. So that was our last season, 2017, and we've done um, what have we done now? Let me just think: 10, 13, 9, 22, 30, uh, 32 shows, I think, in total. Wow. What was that like getting a call from a producer who said, hey, wondering if you'd be interested in auditioning to be a host of a new show? Well, that producer happened to be, you know, again, my best friend. So it, it didn't come with the awe that, uh, <laughs> okay. that, your, that your question did, because that would have been a gobsmack moment had that just come out of the blue, <laughs> let me tell you. But no, he was kind of like, yeah, you know, the CBC have uh, had the show for a while. He said, you know, and they've tried to find a host. And um, well, anyhow, they... Uh, they saw a life story project and they're wondering if um, they're wondering if you'd audition. And I said, well, what do you mean audition? Like I've never been to an audition before. What does that mean? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, you'd have to come to the airport and um, we'd have to shoot you interviewing people at the airport. I said, at the airport, I said, how are we supposed to have a conversation with people at the airport? It's like the noise and everything. He said, well, that's part of the beauty of the show is that everything is done documentary style and we, you know, we'll have to shoot you having a conversation. You'll be mic'd up. The subject will be mic'd up, but the cameras will be 25, 30 feet away. He said, you're not going to notice the cameras. We'll be on super long lenses and your job is just to have a conversation with them like you always do. I said, oh, okay, well, let me, let me do that. So I went in and I auditioned. But what he didn't tell me was that they were also auditioning two other hosts. So I had a time frame. I had, I think my time frame was like one to three, and then somebody else was coming in from three to five, and somebody had been prior, sort of 11 to, 11 to one. I thought I was the only guy that they were auditioning. And it turns out that they were auditioning um, uh, three of us. And, uh, and then he called me back uh, later, and he said, you nailed it. Like, he said, your interviews were far and away the best uh the best interviews he said i don't even know i don't even know how to describe what you do he said but they love it and you know people that you're talking to and listening to they really open up to you and um that's the magic of the show is is that you know the the guests have to feel uh safe and comfortable and they they have to be willing to share that is really cool Mm-hmm. Thank what, you. What was that like all of a sudden being the host of a, a show on TV? Was that 
a little surreal at first? For sure. Absolutely. There, there is an unreal or surreal aspect of, of it. But there's also other dynamics, as I'm sure you were saying uh, uh, to me uh, before we started that, you know, you've, that you're, you're coming up on two years, you've done 56 episodes, yeah. is it? Yeah, yeah 56 yeah. episodes. So, you know, there's a very real part of being involved uh, in a show or in a production. You know, for us, we shot... Um, our ratio was, um, we would shoot a 10 to one, sometimes a 12 to one ratio. So for every, if we needed four stories for a show, a half hour show, we would shoot close to 50 stories. Oh my goodness. Um, But those, those would be 50 stories that we would shoot, but we would also, I would have conversations that didn't end up getting selected. So each year, so each year, so 2015, 2016, and 2017, I, I would have shot close to um, probably 200 stories per season uh, <laughs> at an average length of 60 to 90 minutes apiece. Wow. So, so as I, I as I've said to my uh, as I said to my partner and wife here, I have, you know, I have about 600 people in my head whose stories and lives I know very personal moving things about them because I've spent an hour or an hour and a half with them. And that to me is probably the most surreal part of, of the show. The once the show airs and, or being recognized is, isn't to me as, um, surreal as that I have a constellation of stories in my head. And I would say to you that, you know, we shot the last season in 2017 and I still have many of those people and their stories up in my head because, because they're just so impactful. Right. So you could be walking through the city and uh, see somebody you recognize and give them a little wink. Like I know all about you. (laughs) No, but no, not that. But I do. I'll tell you what does happen sometimes is that I'll be somewhere. Um, and, uh, typically it's with, with, uh, with my family or with one of my kids or something. And somebody will come up to me and they go, Hey Dale, how's it going? And I literally, oh, no word of a lie. I literally have to go through so many file folders in my mind <laughs> to figure out how do I know this person? That you know, unless funny. it's obvious, right? Unless they're Unless it's, you know, somebody within my um, immediate sort of proximity as a neighbor or in the town that I live in. But I honestly, I have to do that. And more often than not, it'll be somebody saying to me, oh, well, I know you because you interviewed my and then, you know, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, my best friend. Yeah, that's happened many, many times. Well, I'm wondering, too, so you talked about, you know, these were interviews and people connected with you and you have developed some processes around listening, right? Like empathetic listening and so forth that Mm -hmm. you share with healthcare providers. I do. Absolutely. Um, And a lot of that, you know, people ask me, well, what is empathetic listening? And for me, empathetic listening is this combination of active listening with some some uh, techniques taken from relational communication, which is really communication about building relatedness, 
and therapeutic inquiry. And therapeutic inquiry is really the, the training that we receive in, in, as, a mental, as mental health professionals to, to be able to ask questions that people can learn from. So, and those are different from informational questions. They're questions that essentially help a person open up a door for themselves in terms of their own process. And we get trained in, in certainly in how to do that. And then, like I said earlier on, you know, the more hours that you are a therapist, the more hours that you have working with uh, clients and patients, the more that craft becomes refined. And um, so a lot of what somebody would see on Hello Goodbye, for instance, is me really just holding space for a person and listening to them uh, and being fully present, which is the active listening part. And then conversing with them in such a way that I can build a relationship with them genuinely and asking questions that maybe they've never been asked before. And they're not probing questions, but they're evocative questions. They're ones that maybe are uh, uh, an aspect of what they've said to me or an understanding, a way of looking at this thing that maybe they haven't, the story that maybe they haven't thought of before. And they learn something from that. I learn something from that. And this is a big part of, so what I've done is I've combined and blended all of that together. And where I'm finding it's, it's really hitting a, um, a chord is with nurses um, in the U.S. Um, and CNOs who are trying to improve their patient satisfaction scores and really see that the communication link or the bridge between the nurse or the, and the patient is critical to that patient satisfaction score. They know that how a nurse interacts moment by moment with a patient, how they speak to that patient, how they listen to that patient, how they show empathy, how they embrace or empathize or relate to the patient's family if there is one, those are the building blocks of, of, a, of a great patient satisfaction score. And as you know, in the U.S. system, uh, which is different from our public-based system here in Canada, satisfaction scores are really important because people choose to spend their healthcare dollars, and the, they get to choose that, right? Where they spend those dollars. Whereas here, we don't, we don't. It's not necessarily a choice for us. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, that just that makes so much sense to me. I think. Many times it seems to me, and I could be mistaken, but a lot of times I feel like the doctors have like a 20-minute slot, you know, so they're in, what's the problem? Okay, here's the solution, see ya, right? But I feel like I've also gone to like the very well-known Mayo Clinic where mm -hmm. they are very patient-centric. They want you to ask questions. They, can, they check with you to make sure you understand everything, and it just feels a, a lot more care is taken because they want the questions they want to answer your questions and and they you do get this sense of empathy from them mm -hmm. i would say mayo clinic cleveland clinic houston methodist as uh, as an example in texas these are hospitals that understand how important that patient connection is and uh, and they are the ones spending considerable resources onboarding staff and training staff, especially care staff, on how to have meaningful interactions 
with patients. You know, because diseases, diseases and conditions and treatment protocols, uh, they don't live in isolation. Those, those happen to people. Yeah. And it's people who walk through the door, um, not a disease yeah. or a condition. Well Absolutely. So tell us where people can find you, find out more about you, book you as a keynote speaker, find out uh, all they need to about you. Well, the, I would say the, the, the first place you can find me is, uh, is certainly on, on my own uh, website, dalecurd.com. Um, and I'm, you've got my email contact is there. My, uh, personal, um, cell phone number is there and I'm open to, to receiving contact for sure through, through that. Uh, but also through the men's list. I absolutely, uh, would love to hear from people, um, through the men's list. Uh, so that's the men's list.com. And, um, uh, I'm as the founder of the men's list, I'm reachable by email there as well as, uh, as by phone number. All right. It sounds like incredible work you're doing. You know, before we wrap up, I would love to hear if you could put in, I mean, you have given us so many nuggets actually, but if you could put in a nutshell, one piece of advice you'd give to a listener right now who may be struggling, what would that piece of advice be? Uh, you know, that's such a, that's such an interesting question because I think I don't want to, I don't want to sound uh, simplistic, um, because I know, I know what I wanted to hear when I was in that place. And, uh, I know what I, what people were telling me that sometimes I, I, I didn't believe and it took a while for me to believe it. But all I'll say is that what connected to me was the, the, the actions that in, that a couple of individuals took to reach out and to reach sort of beyond their own comfort zones to tell me how much they cared that I was worth reaching out to and that, that uh, they were willing to stand by me and with me. And so I think I would say to someone who's, who's listening to this, who's not sure about where they stand or what's important, and maybe they don't have anybody physically close to them right now, or maybe they're struggling with, with the, the dark part of aloneness that, that often comes with depression. And all I would say to that person is, you may not believe this right now, but I want you to trust me that you, you are worth life. Life is worth living. And it, that may not be true for you today, uh, and it wasn't true for me many days, but I have had days where that has been true and is true. Right. Nice piece of advice. Well, Dale, I want to thank you very much for your time on the show, and I want to thank you for the work you do. I think it's incredible that you've put together the men's list, a great resource for men to reach out. I know, I believe you offer online counseling as well yourself, Right. And then many of the therapists on uh, the men's list. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think for me, um, online counseling is, is a great way to expand the opportunity to work with more individuals who might be, uh, you know, might have difficulty in terms of geography or um, or time. 
you know, as an example. And I really appreciate your kind words, Alex. Uh, it, it means a lot. And I know you're doing phenomenal work um, with your podcast and your 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 social presence on the issue um, of depression, I think, is, is, is making a huge impact. Um, so please keep up this great work. Hey, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Make sure you stay in touch and uh, stay healthy. Thanks, Al. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.